Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Teaching Yoga Podcast. Today on the show, I speak with Markella Los and Avita Bansi. Markella and Avita are part of a new collaborative yoga studio business model. Um, it's an online studio called The Connective. And if you have worked in the yoga industry for a while, you might have had the feeling that something wasn't quite right. We have talked about this a lot on this podcast about teachers' rights, about teachers empowering themselves by learning business skills, um, and we'll have even more episodes in the future talking about the distinction between are we really independent contractors, are most of us actually employees, but we just don't get any of the benefits, and these are issues that we will continue to address on the show. However, in today's episode, I wanted to speak to Markella and Avita because they are doing something different. 
So the Connective is a teacher-owned worker co-op. And I was really interested to learn about this type of business model. Now, some of you will be interested in collaborating with your fellow teachers to create um, more of a horizontal organizational structure rather than the traditional sort of hierarchical structure that is inside of most businesses where you have like an owner and a manager and then the teachers. Um, What Markella and Avita and the other teachers at The Connective are doing is something truly different. And it might be of real interest to some of you to learn how they have done that. So on today's show, I ask Markella what The Connective is and why she was inspired to start it. Avita shares her early experience with yoga at home and how she started teaching. We talk about the legal structure of setting up a collaborative business and how that is a little different than, um, you know, a sole proprietorship or um, a non-co-op or collaborative uh, structure in your business. We talk about the shared values that hold the connective together and what it's actually like to be a teacher in a teacher-owner studio. We chat about the benefits of being in a collaborative business versus owning a business individually and how yoga has been devalued in Western culture overall. And finally, we finish the episode with a bit of advice about starting your own collaborative business. Now, I am a huge proponent of people making their own independent choices, but to do that, we really need to have all of the options on the table. So having a collaborative or a co-op-based business may not have been something you've ever considered or has been modeled to you. I know I've had questions from people inside of the Teachers Club about how to run a collaborative business. And even though I was part of a collaborative business, I... I, um, I, <laughs> I'll pause on that. I have uh, I have my own business now independently, and that's what I choose. But for you, running a collaborative business may be um, a really interesting path to explore. So if you're interested in a new way to do business as a yoga teacher, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Markella and Avita from The Connective. Hey, Markella and Avita, thank you so much for coming to the show today. Hey, Cora, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Cora. Um, Avita, I have interviewed Markella on this podcast once before, so I would love to start with you and and a little bit about your story and how you got into the practice of yoga, how you started um, teaching yoga. And then if you wouldn't mind also sharing a little bit about what you teach right now, um, both in your, you know, your wider life and at The Connective. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, I guess my earliest um, introduction to yoga was through um, my family growing up in an Indo-Caribbean Hindu household. Um, At home is where my mother prayed. There wasn't like a a huge Indo-Caribbean community. There were no temples and really, you know, um, 
most of Hinduism happens in the home. Um, the daily prayer and practicing and pujas. Um, and in the Trini community, we call them prez. Um, all happened at home. And so uh, the chanting was really one of my favorite things. And then the fire, right? Um, the fire during prez and pujas and and the Hindu gods um, and their stories, the philosophy, the myth, um, the epics. That was really my first introduction to yoga um, as a child. And like many angsty kids with immigrant parents, that shifted a lot in my teenage years. Um, so there was, you know, I grew up in a mostly white area of Montreal. And, you know, you, it's very palpable that like coolness is currency. And coolness, it means eschewing your otherness. Um, so uh, definitely came back to those practices and to yoga later on after my teens, um, or my late teens rather, when I was about 18 in college, there was a yoga class and I took that and I was blown away and I connected it, connected to it in a way that I didn't really realize was also connected to those roots, the foundation learning I was doing at home. And I did some pretty, um, typical, appropriative um, yoga teacher trainings, um, you know, where there wasn't much um, in terms of the culture around yoga, the roots of yoga, or practices beyond um, asana, you know, just a little bit of the yoga sutras. So it took a lot of self-study, a lot of self-practice and engaging and learning from the South Asian community, the wider South Asian community to really um, understand my place in the yoga world. And that, I guess, brings us back to what I'm doing now. Um, so it's, it's very different from the place I started when I started teaching yoga. I was teaching yoga to a largely... Um, white audience because of the yoga studios I was teaching at and being from an Indo-Caribbean household, I didn't speak any um, Indian languages. So even the Sanskrit, I was like, I was learning it from English speakers, right? So even my pronunciation was not great. So, <laughs> so not until really um, connecting to other teachers of color and other South Asian teachers have I really, I feel like grown into what I'm teaching now, which is very much what I think of as yoga, which is anti-racism and yoga philosophy and yoga asana and ethics. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, a like little follow-up question, if you don't mind, when you started like doing more westernized yoga in your later teens after you kind of did the, you know, reject everything that comes from your own family, which I think I, I totally relate to in your, um, in your earlier teen years, what did your family think about you stepping back into yoga, but from a different, like learning from Western teachers and 
um, like, did they, did they resonate with you doing that or was it, they weren't interested or do you have any, anything that you'd be comfortable sharing around that? Sure. I mean, I haven't really thought about it. I was living, so at 17, my parents moved to Vermont. So by the time I had taken my like first Western yoga class, I'd already been, you know, really living on my own, um, well, in their empty house, (laughs) (laughs) but not with them every day. So I don't feel like I had a conversation about yoga with them until like I moved to New York and was practicing a lot more. And my father's a fitness person. So when I'd visit them, like he'd be working out and I'd be doing yoga and we would learn from each other. We'd have this exchange and he had some yoga asana um, instruction, I guess, in his environment. Like no one ever taught him yoga asana, but his father used to do yoga every day. Um, so, so it was kind of just fun and light in that sense. But when I decided to become a yoga teacher, that, that raised some flags. <laughs> and then I think for them, um, yoga, the way they understood what I was practicing, they, they very much, they're pretty political people. They understood that it was very much alienated from um, the yoga that, you know, is practiced in Trinidad, right? Um, so for them, they were like, they're really skeptical about <laughs> the irony, really skeptical about a brown person being able to make money teaching yoga. They wouldn't be wrong, right? Um, and and yeah, that I guess that was their primary concern. And then also on the flip side, you know, they they did feel happy that I was I was participating in like parts of my culture, and I think they were just really patient with that. And um, and then talking to them, being more curious about how those early teachings would weave into my yoga teachings and my practice, you know, it, it kind of brought us closer in a lot of ways too. Yeah. They sound cool. (laughs) You sound like you've got some good, cool, cool family to, um, to, you know, talk to and have conversations with about these sorts of things. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, of course they are cool. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Markella, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Um, I would love to know from you um, a little bit about the connective, which is kind of the topic that we're here to talk about today. Um, Can you tell us like what it is and also why were you inspired to start this? Sure. Um, So the Connective is an online wellness workers cooperative, um, and it stands at the intersection of quality, diversity, anti-racism, and accessibility. Um, So the Connective is a group of individuals, and we're determined to disrupt the harm and exploitation of the wellness industry, um, and we happen to be using a business as the vehicle by which to do that and to carve a new path forward. Um, So that's sort of, in a nutshell, what the Connective is. And how the idea kind of came about was, you know, last March, so March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, when 
everything started closing down and, you know, many teachers who had never taught online before were all of a sudden moving online. Um, what I was seeing kind of play out right in front of me was um, sort of a magnification of a lot of the issues um, and a lot of the issues that were already uh, existent in the industry and that we knew about. Um, so I, I saw all these, uh, I saw the pandemic and the shift online sort of exacerbating certain inequities um, and then also saw a huge need for teachers to come together and support each other through this and, and position themselves in a way that they would have a say in what the industry looked like during the pandemic. You know, at that point, we had no idea how long it would last. Um, and also after, you know, what, what are we coming back to if right now we're setting this precedent that like everything is free and um, so on and so forth. Um, and so at the time, so in March, I'd been, uh, I was working as an organizer at, with the Machinist Union, which, um, as you know, I'd worked with on unionized yoga and on um, establishing the first labor union for yoga and fitness teachers in the United States. Um and when the pandemic happened about like two weeks in, everyone in my position was laid off. Um, but I was still really committed to organizing in the industry on my own. So I started reaching out to people and getting referrals and, and just trying to find a group of people who might want to do this. Um, and, you know, it was in some ways it was like the rug had been pulled out from underneath me. And in other ways, I do feel like I, I sort of had this opportunity. Um, you know, I'd, I'd learned a lot from working on unionized yoga, and I think it's largely how I fell in love with organizing and um, bringing people together to solve collective problems. Um, but there was also a lot that um, it's a both and, right? So I'm super proud of a lot of what we accomplished with unionized yoga. And... Um, I'm seeing ways where, you know, our impact was restricted by the existent um, business and hiring practices of Yoga Works New York. Um, and so, for example, um, only 10% of the staff, of the teaching staff at Yoga Works New York were BIPOC. Um, and that's something that we were trying to work to change through a contract, um, but was still really limited, right? So we we're really limited in what we could do. Um, and so now we had this opportunity to build something from scratch and it was a matter of like, well, what is, what does it look like when we aren't constrained by an existing company? And what does it look like to really build a business from the ground up that does reflect racial and economic justice? Um, and so that's really the foundation of the connective and the kinds of questions we've been asking from day one and sort of, um, taking theory, taking ideas and actually putting them into action. Hmm. It's so cool. Um, you know, to be able to start Did fresh. Did any of that make sense? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it You're did. It totally, totally, totally did. And I, I do have follow-up questions, but it did make sense in that. And I think for a lot of the people listening, right. You know, there are people who listen to this, who um, teach, you know, for the love of it. And um, they have like stable other sources of income. Um, but there are also people, I know a lot of them who listen to this, who make their living full time as a yoga teacher. So I think that, 
you know, what you, what you are saying will be part of what they're living day in and day out. So I think, you know, it, it, it does make sense because we've all, most of us have experienced, um, you know, some of the things that brought you to, to organize at yoga works in the first place. And, um, to have this fresh opportunity to actually build something from scratch. So I would love to know, like, how does the actual structure work? I feel like you're, I feel like I heard that you're a worker co-op. I don't, is that the right term to use? Yeah, there's a couple different types of worker co-ops. Um, I, I don't know if it matters to folks listening and it's probably different in different countries, to be honest, but, uh, we're technically a membership co-op. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's it's basically a worker co-op. Yeah. So that's like the really nerdy answer. Um, we're a worker co-op and every worker is an owner. Um, so there's about 25-ish teacher owners, uh, worker owners um, at the Connective. And we are growing again. Uh, we're uh, in the process of interviewing folks to join. Um, and so to the question about the structure of the co-op, um, the basis of how we built that structure was acknowledging that without fundamentally shifting power and how power is shared, we would not be able to make substantive and sustainable change. And so that was the basis of our decisions around, um, around our structure. So um, a cooperative is a, it's a legal type of company. Um, it operates with a set of bylaws and with a board. Um, we wrote our own bylaws. So cool. we, a, a group of us, you know, was getting together for uh, several months and kind of thinking through all the possible ways um, that we could put equity into action and how we could um, ensure that everyone in the co-op had a voice and a vote um, and, and a real say in how the business was running. Um, but then also we did have, uh, you know, we do have a board of directors. We actually call it um, a stewards council because we prefer those terms. Um, and the stewards council is an elected, it's a group of elected leaders, um, but there's also checks and balances with that. So it's not like even the elected leadership gets to just do whatever they want. There's, uh, we wrote in all these ways that we can keep each other accountable and have this legal document. So that's in the bones of our business is this accountability. Um, so we have our bylaws and our stewards council. And then we also use a, a, um, a set of agreements that we also co-wrote and have added to on occasion. And, and that really guides more of our culture and how we operate, how we work together, um, and all of this work was the community agreements type work and, and certain, um, agreements we made around cultural appropriation and, uh, naming anti-racism as a value of our business. And all of these things were part of the foundation upon which the cooperative business was, was built. Um, so it's not to say that the co-op structure isn't important, but, what you put into those, those bones is just as important, you know? Um, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else to add about that. I don't think so. Unless Avita has something. Um, it was, it's interesting. I was listening to um, 
Today Explained at the Vox podcast. And they were talking about Google and Google early days. And we were talking about our stewards council, Markella. I was thinking of the podcast listen because what stood out to me was in the early days, do no evil, right? (laughs) Was how Google attempted to operate. And the bylaws, the stewards council, the community agreements, the student agreements, um, these, you know, it's so, so difficult to believe in ethical capital, ethical businesses, right? For good reason, if you look at Google today. And I think the foundation had to be not just, you know, the co-op structure, but for us to actually have a diverse team, we had to be anti-racist. Me, for example, I would not participate in a business that wasn't. If we didn't have a statement on cultural appropriation, it wouldn't be the right business for me. So, so to truly be diverse and to be an owner, you, you have to have that foundation in ethics and values. I do believe just saying no evil is, is vapid and empty and will probably lead to evil. So, Yeah. And it's also, Cora, it's like a living, it's a living organism, you know? It's not like, oh, we wrote our bylaws and so that's that. Now we do that forever. Um, it's a, there's constant reflection and assessment and, um, additions to what we're doing. Um, and so I feel like, uh, that's also what's allowed us to start something and then just see how it goes while we're doing it and then make it better as we go too. Um, yeah, such a good point, which is really, which is also really important if what you're doing is trying to have a diverse space where everyone actually has a voice Anyone who comes on, you know, after that initial group of teachers also needs to be able to have a voice. They need to be able to um, really participate in the vision and and um, both contribute to it and also take responsibility for it. And so for it to really be part of everyone who is involved, like both a reflection of everyone who's involved and um, have their their participation in it. Um, Um, I I was just thinking, you know, we chatted a little bit uh, right before we hit record about how I, you know, got into something that was, you know, from the outside could look potentially similar to what you are doing, although it was a physical studio space a couple of years ago where there were multiple teachers collaborating to create something that was you know, that the intention was like, you know, better than what one individual teacher could do on their own in terms of different skill sets and different ideas. And, um, but Avita, what you mentioned about, yes, the co-op structure kind of gave you a starting point and something to work from and a foundation, but having those values be clear and agreed upon in, from my experience, would help you to gather people who could work cohesively together 
because there are shared values. And even when there are disagreements and challenges, which, you know, just happens because people are human, um, the shared values are enough that you, you know, even if you have a different idea about how to arrive at a solution, the solution is reflected in those values, right? Like I I think I've heard of it. um, When people get married, one of the biggest predictors of, is that going to be a long-term union is if the two people involved have shared values, because even if they have differences, they can come back to those values as something that unites them. And anyone who is not into the values that your um, organization believes in just won't want to be involved. Yeah, That's all I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and you would be able to recognize them as well. Like if someone wanted to be involved and they didn't recognize it in in themselves and you're like, Hey, are you, are you willing to work with all of these things? Because we need all of these things for you to buy into it before you, you know, become part of the, the company. Absolutely. And I think because of the shared values, because of the meetings we started with, we just, you know, we just threw each other into zoom rooms in the beginning. I didn't, I wasn't there for the first couple, maybe Markelly, you can let me know, (laughs) but Um, I didn't know anybody in that Zoom room except for Elizabeth. Um, And I guess I had taken classes at Yoga Works with a couple of the teachers, but I didn't know know many people. And um, and yeah, after a couple of meetings, I was like, oh, I don't have to speak in my yoga studio voice. This is interesting. This is exciting. And I was tired of speaking my yoga studio voice. Like, and it didn't take long for people to know who I was, right? And um, and I feel like a lot of the people grew into that as well. And something that we hear a lot is people are taking that breath, you know, that sigh of relief. They're arriving as their whole selves. They feel like this is a space where they belong. And, and I think that foundational work and the continuous work on that um, really helps us know who we are and helps other people that, you know, sit down and think about joining. They, they get a very clear view about our values too, just from speaking to any one of us. Um, Avita, I was wondering if you would share a little bit about what it's like from a teacher owner perspective, like, you know, with a regular yoga studio, you are told what classes you can teach usually. And there's, um, some depending on the studio, like, and teach this way in the studio. And there's not a lot of, like the teachers don't have a lot of say, I guess, in, different studios are different. So I don't want to paint every studio with the same brush, but there is a clear delineation of, you know, the teacher is working for the studio and they need to do what the studio wants them to do in order for things to go smoothly. Um, But as a teacher owner, like how is that different than working in a, in a studio, like a traditional studio setting? Well, the big difference is that I participated in what the options are. (laughs) Like I got to decide um, as an owner what uh, all of us would agree to in terms of content, right? 
Um, that's the, the biggest difference was um, being part of the decision-making. And then um, we have multiple ways for people to add content onto the platform. So for me, I do live classes and I send out recordings to people that join for the whole month through all access. And, um, and you're, you're completely in control of what goes into that class. Um, you know, you can teach yoga, you can teach other modalities and how you teach yoga. I mean, with respect to our community agreements, accessibility, um, you know, I think you pretty much can teach any type of class, keeping those things in mind. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty open. A lot of teachers choose to do pre-recorded content. The live doesn't work for them. I find in my schedule, um, I like the live. It gives me a type of consistency with my own yoga practice that I need for survival. So yeah, I think teachers have a, a little bit of freedom, but we also do have some structure that we agreed upon in the beginning. Um, so we're continuously uploading creative new content every month. Mm. So there's like um, a set of guidelines about like how often people post or the types of classes that they put up like live versus pre-recorded, And then the, the teacher sort of has freedom within that to make choices for themselves. Is that, is that correct? So yeah, within that. So I mean, Mark Kelly can jump in anytime, but it's just like there's a live um, number of live classes a month you can teach, or you could do a hybrid with live and re- pre-recorded, or you could do all pre-recorded. And there are several ways to add um, that content, you know, with just drop-in classes, or you can do all access live and you send out those recordings from your live classes to the people that um, join the all access. And then there's video workshops, there are single video rentals, and then there's all access hybrid with some live content and some pre-recorded content. And then there's all access libraries with a bunch of pre-recorded content. So that's, that's a lot. I would say that like the, the, the basis of this is that we do have a minimum teaching requirement. And again, that what that minimum is, is something that all the teacher owners decided yep. on together. Um, but so there is a minimum amount to ensure that uh, that there is work coming into our, our shared business so that it actually survives and thrives. Um, and then there's also standards, again, that teacher owners all set around um, what certain content is going to be priced at, uh, how much content is included for that price. Um, and so the, there's again, like an overall structure that's agreed upon, but within that, what each teacher does in their own classes, they have um, complete freedom to do that. Um, And part of why, you know, when in the beginning when we were talking about this was, um, as you mentioned, at at many studios, um, even though the teachers are the ones that hold the expertise, they are not always treated as the experts that they are. And we really wanted to do something different. We wanted to trust each other. Everyone on the platform is um, pretty experienced as a teacher 
Um, no one's fresh out of teacher training. Some folks have been teaching for like 15, 20 years. Um, and so we really wanted to acknowledge and, and value each other's labor and, um, and knowledge and, and give each other the freedom to, to show up again, authentically as themselves, um, in, in whatever way that looked like within these shared guidelines. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much for that. I was wondering, like, um, you know, how how you decided what people would teach or when they would teach or how much. But it kind of sounds like you I mean, it, not kind of it. <laughs> you've set out a set of like mutually agreed upon and chosen guidelines of options. And then within that, the teacher individual teacher can choose the options that work for them in terms of live or, you know, what the format is. And then within their actual class themselves, like the, in the content of the class, as long as it adheres to, adheres to guidelines that have been agreed on by everyone, like accessibility and, you know, um, that sort of thing, then the teacher can be as creative or consistent or, you know, whichever way that they want to express themselves within the class. Is that, is that, did that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and teach in the format that's going to best fit their lives. Like Avita was saying, you know, what works for her. Um, we're not all vying for the same brick and mortar space. So there's no need to micromanage each other's class times. You know, the way it's set up now, is like teach at the class times that work for you and your life and that your work for your students and that people are coming to like, that's all that matters. <laughs> uh, so beyond, you know, we have a few teachers that are all teaching at noon. It's not a conflict. I think we've, you know, uh, both because of space restrictions, but also because of an overall mentality in the industry, there's this like, you know, competition that's, it's false. It's not really there or it doesn't need to be there. Um, It's artificial in that sense. And when people are actually allowed to show up as themselves and their whole selves um, and attract the people that want what they're offering, then there's plenty of room. Yeah, there are enough students and, you know, people who go to your class might really not like my class <laughs> and that's okay. And so yeah, exactly. having, having the option, um, to, to teach at different times. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's an, as you said, it's like kind of makes sense when it's in a physical studio space, but outdated in the world that we're sort of living in now. Um, I don't know which one of you would be better to answer this question. So please, uh, whoever feels called to just jump in, but what are the benefits of a teacher joining the connective as your business in specific, or just like joining together as a, um, a collaborative or, or, you know, a co-op of other teachers versus teaching their own online classes. Like, I guess what I'm getting at is like, why would someone want to be in collaboration versus doing it on their own? I mean, this is an Avita question. Yeah. I, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think, well, there's, there's a lot, um, for me that I gain from the connective that is beyond just teaching the class. We, learn from each other continuously in terms of 
the ins and out of running a business. We share the labor of running a business. Um, I'm a newly single mother of two. And, you know, if there's a month where something happens in my life, I know I can walk away and I have a team of really supportive people to keep promoting the connective and even, you know, help me figure out how to, you know, care for my students, my community, right? Um, so they're not just, they don't just drop off into space. There's, there's that. And then, you know, we are living in a pandemic. <laughs> um, the routine, you know, just like I said, with why I teach the live classes, I really enjoy having that dedicated practice of gathering in community with people with shared values. And it's created a growth in me that is invaluable. I don't know, Markella, you want to add anything there for you? Um, I mean, the reason I, part of the reason why I was thinking this was an Avita question is uh, I'm not teaching on the platform. So I'm, like, I can think of benefits of being involved, but they are not from my own experience, you know? Um, so I guess that's part of why I feel like um, I'm not maybe quite the person to talk to about mm-hmm. that. You can mm-hmm. cut all of this out. But um, <laughs> but um, the other benefit is, like the main benefit that I think of from like an organizer perspective is that this is how change will happen. It's not going to happen by someone working by themselves and not talking to anyone about what the problems are and what, you know, what they want to see different. Um, Change will happen through people working together and, that necessitates collaboration. So we better get pretty damn good at collaborating <laughs> because otherwise we won't be able to solve problems, you know? So, um, absolutely. Yeah. The- like there's, there's like the big picture part of it too, beyond the the day to day, which like, yeah, there's skill sharing, sharing of labor, um, Avita and two other teachers led a workshop on cultural appropriation, an internal workshop. And so like there's constant education and growth. Um, but then it's also that like all of us are needed to make things work better and to align this industry with the values of a yoga practice or the values of, um, I wanted to say not not being a shitty person, but (laughs) 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 Um, just like values of like justice, right? Social justice, racial justice, economic justice. Um, So everyone is needed to participate in that in in making that change. Absolutely. I think we are very aware that going it alone is not necessarily going to be viable, right? There is a huge you know, there's a huge problem if people that do go it alone and do make a thriving wage, they don't recognize the privileges that they've had to get there, right? Um, in terms of how the industry is set up, 
the value and price structure of individual classes. Very few people can make a thriving wage just from teaching classes and selling class, pre-recorded class content. And right there, you know, you can't, you can't go it alone and change the industry. So teaching it full-time as your profession, as your career is accessible. You cannot do that alone. You need a team of people to do that with, to change the industry, to say, what's wrong with the industry? What's wrong with the industry has been hidden and masked under the uh, like co-opted ethics of yoga, right? We don't really talk about the problems because we kind of want to believe that we're very open and welcoming in the wellness community, but we are not. We advantage people that, I think, Cora, you mentioned this earlier, people that don't have to teach to make a living. They have other means of income, right? They do it for the love of it, I think were your exact words. Doing it for the love of it is problematic if you are doing it for the love of it and you devalue the practice. And many people have, and the practice is deeply devalued. And we need to talk about that if we're going to make it possible for anyone to really just go out and make it on their own. Mm. When you say they've devalued it, can you um, say a little bit more about that? I feel like that's something that that many people I've spoken to have a feeling about or like a hunch that something's not right, but they haven't put it into words. Um, I don't know if it's something that you've thought a lot about, but do you have any more to say on like how that shows up? <laughs> okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe you've thought about it a bit. Um, you know. <laughs> um, yes, I've thought about it a bit. And <laughs> No, this is, this is the work of my life. I mean, what has called me to teach yoga is what called me to study anti-racism in university and college, to study anti-capitalism. These are, these are not new, new concepts for me. Um, and watching the wellness industry and being in it, you know, I've, I've accumulated years of critique just bubbling at the surface and the systematic devaluation of yoga is both in its appropriation, its denigration and whitewashing, right? Um, and then also in terms of it's how it's been operating in this capitalist structure. And these things are connected and intersecting and a big part of that devaluation is that appropriation of a certain group of people with access to wealth networks to open yoga studios, to teach yoga classes, and have other streams of income, right? Either family wealth or other jobs or whatever else, right? And, and so... We're talking about people running businesses and teaching classes that are not depending on that to live. And so they price the classes a certain way 
to attract more students, what they think is going to attract more students. And the teachers, even though the teachers are the highest cost for most of the studios, the teachers do not make living wages, right? And they do not set up a business to pay teachers living wages. Instead, they set up an independent contractor model, right? Mm -hmm. So most wellness workers, most yoga teachers are self-employed, right? They're not even employed. And if you're not employed, what do you, you count on what you get paid per class. But if students are only paying about $18, $20 per class and classes, depending on the studio, have about like 20 people max in them. And then you have your overhead. Many teachers walk out from teaching an hour long class that they probably devoted an additional two hours, you know, in terms of prep time, study time, practice time, getting there, signing people in, (laughs) checking people out. Um, they'll probably walk away with less than, you know, $75. $75 is high for most studios. And you cannot go it alone because if people are used to spending about $20 a class, right, or less, if you're talking about online, you, you know, doing the math, you would have to teach a lot of people, a lot of classes, to just make $60,000 a year, right? Which, frankly, $60,000 a year is high for what you would make, but very low in terms of what we think of as a thriving wage, especially if you have children, you know, you have a family, or you have aging parents. So when we're talking about how the business was set up, it was set up for people that don't worry about supporting themselves or others. And that says a lot about accessibility in terms of who can teach classes. And I know we talk a lot about accessibility in terms of who can take classes, but if you want more teachers of color in the room, more teachers with disabilities in the room, you need to actually change the industry as a whole. Because if you cannot work in the industry and make enough money to live and support yourself and your family, you'll never have diverse teachers. And to pretend that you can walk in and do this on your own when there's been systematic devaluation of the labor itself, of the classes themselves, and also just a systematic devaluation of of what yoga and wellness is. Because now at this point, you know, a lot of people see yoga and wellness as what dominant white culture has presented it as, right? And in many ways is, is vapid, right? It's about toxic diet culture, right? It's about um, weight loss and uh, luxury lifestyle, retreats and fancy, you know, places to stay at. It's like a spa culture. And, and I think what true wellness and what true yoga is, is has, you know, very little to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> I am um, having been a full-time yoga teacher for a decade. Um, 
I, I, yeah, I have experienced a lot of, um, you know, what you're talking about in terms of making a living wage. And one of the reasons I don't have children is because I have chosen this as a profession and the income that comes through that as a profession, um, didn't make me feel safe that I could do that, you know? And I mean, maybe, maybe in the future things will change. Who knows? Um, I'm not, I'm not teaching yoga classes anymore, but, um, you know, it was one of the things where I was like, what am I, what am I looking at here in terms of being able to support myself? Okay, cool. I figured that out just, (laughs) um, but if I wanted to, you know, have a family, usually the way that, um, that happens for other teachers I know is that they have a partner who has a job that is a different job, you know, like a, a job that has a corporate salary of some kind or something like that. Um, and I would, I would love to know from either of you, because like, I'm sort of trying to work this out on myself as well. Um, in terms of like, how do I create something that is sustainable and, um, would allow me to have choices in terms of, um, you know, supporting myself or, you know, parents getting older and that sort of thing. How, how is the financial side of the connective working out in terms of, I think most yoga teachers think like per class, but I don't know if that's the right way to talk about it for the connective, but how is that working for Avita? If you can share your experience or Michaela, if you know, like the broader experience of what's going on for people. Yeah, I can share a a little bit like big picture. Um, So the connective right now at the time of this conversation is less than a year old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it is definitely a startup still. Um, (laughs) So just like putting that out there. Um, So a couple things to know about the financial side of the co-op, which we've been pretty transparent about um, and this information is generally generally easy to access for folks um, is that we do not have any investors. We are not funded by, by private equity or anything like that. Um, we started the co-op based on a method called the lean startup method, which basically means you, you know, you have an idea for something, you get the most basic version of it that you can out there. It's called the minimum viable product emphasis Mm -hmm. on the minimal (laughs) and you get that out there, which is why our platform looks the way it does. Um, You get that out there, see if like prove your idea, right? See if do people want this, do, do teachers want to be part owners of this? Do students want to come Um, get a lot of really great information about how to actually make it work and then invest money. Um, in it. And so the money that we'll be investing is money from our own platform. Um, it's, you know, from students that contribute through our fundraising efforts. Um, so it ends up being something that's, it's sort of the opposite of how a lot of things are built, which is, you know, from like a place of perfectionism of like, oh, it needs to be perfect before anyone can even see it or hear about it. And instead having it be a process and a work in progress and something that's really created by a whole community of people. Um, So that's sort of like where we are now. Um, 100% of the money that comes through the connective in some way stays with the teachers. So 
for every single transaction that happens on the platform, 85% of that income goes straight to the teacher's bank account. And the 15% goes to the Connectives bank account, which is the teacher's bank account. Um, so the 15% covers our shared expenses, um, which we've more than been able to do. We're able to make a, we're making a small profit right now. And, and that's something that we as co-owners are deciding to reinvest in our business and build a new platform right now, which is super exciting. Um, but so even, so the 85% goes straight to the teacher, the 15 that goes to the shared business if there was a profit any year that we did not choose to reinvest, that would get shared, right? So if you each per, if each person is doing well, the business does well, and then the individual does well again you know, because it's all shared back out. Um, so we are making a small profit right now. We're also working our butts off to get mm-hmm. this off the ground as any <laughs> like new business owner would probably attest to as well. Um, So I'm not going to, you know, paint like a fake rosy picture, um, but we're, I think, I don't know, Avita, are we happy with where we're at? (laughs) I think we're on, on the way. Um, I think where we're at is amazing (laughs) given that we have no (laughs) private equity. We have no investors. Um, we, you know, we are passionate about what we do. We are still figuring many pieces out, you know, and the fact is, you know, you build the structure, you need, you need people to know about you, right? You need people to come to your classes. You need people willing to invest in their practice with you, right? Um, so, you know, it brings us always back to that advocacy piece that we know that we cannot exist and many people like us would not exist without the advocacy piece in this industry, um, or at least not for very long. So for us to have endurance, I think we are working really hard to educate and advocate about what we do and why we do it. And, and why this is different. Yeah, absolutely. And the deeper you look into other online pr- platforms, you realize again, so I initially spoke about, you know, the, the wealth networks in the brick and mortar days. And now the platform days with the private equity, the investors, and the, like, this dreams of money you get from selling data tracks. You know, we're living in a time where there are so many different hidden ways people, big tech and big platforms can make money off of people taking classes with them and just visiting their website, not even taking a class. So, you know, personally, when I teach yoga, I teach politics because in terms of what I see as liberation is connected to all those pieces and to be forced into competition with people, you know, teaching so-called yoga and wellness, but doing such unethical things that literally fund and pad the pockets of people that 
lobby against universal health care, lobby against, you know, the things that actually we need in our lives to be healthy and well. You know, I, ca- I cannot participate in that. And my work as a yoga teacher is to advocate against that. Yeah. And, and lead by example, you know, cause I think that, um, I haven't met the other teachers in the connective, but, um, that you're putting out a different model. I was listening to something last night, a podcast, um, and it was a very old podcast. I think it was from, two, well, you know, 2016, but that seems very old in internet days. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they were talking about the reaction to the U.S. election in 2016. And the person on the podcast was saying that, you know, the reaction that comes out of that is one thing, but what if what if instead of putting energy into the reaction, we put energy into telling a better story, a, a more attractive story, a story that was a solution? Um, and that's kind of what I see just from the outside perspective. What you all are doing is that you're telling a better story in terms of, yes, there are huge problems in the wellness industry. And I think that we need to have an awareness of them and we need to really look at them. Um, I think that is so important and such a crucial piece of the puzzle, but there aren't a lot of people telling another story. It's like, okay, that stuff is all fucked up and nobody is happy about it. And I'm not happy about it. (laughs) And, you know, like that we had to get to that point. And I think for a lot of people, there still is a lot of education that needs to happen around that. But then, but but then what, like, what are the other models and what are the other options and what is a better story? And I think that's why I was super excited to see what you all are doing, because it's like, there aren't a lot of, um, alternatives that we can look to at least in the yoga world as a role model of how to do it differently. Um, so yeah, I was super, I'm super excited by, by what you guys are doing. Um, I'm totally like burned in collaboration. So like, even though I'm like, I love what you're doing. I'm like keeping my yeah. guard up, keeping my borders tight. I'm just like, you know, I'm not letting anyone into my space. I think that will change eventually, but um, you know, that's a personal, <laughs> personal thing. Um, but I think that there are a lot of teachers out there who We'll hear about what you do either on this podcast or see what you do on via Instagram or, you know, come across your platform in whatever way they get there and think, wow, oh my God, I would so love to do something like that because they're aware of, you know, they've, they've been burned by other issues in the, their experience with teaching or, you know, they've been struggling to put food on the table with the traditional model or whatever reason there is. I think there's a lot of reasons why people would find what you're doing really attractive. Um, So there, I have two sort of questions that are very similar, but different. How would someone go about like putting in an application to join your co-op? But I know that's only open to U.S. folks at the moment. So that's part one. And then part two, any advice if someone's like, okay, well, I live in Australia or I live in Spain or I live wherever, um, but I love this model and I would love to maybe create something like that in my community. Do you have, can you kind of either one of you talk to both of those pieces of the puzzle? 
I think I can probably answer the first one, Avita, if you want to take the second part. Sure. Does that sound right? Okay? Um, what was the first part again? <laughs> how, how do people actually join yours? Like, what's the application process oh, yeah, and yeah. how do okay. they do that? Yeah. So, uh, as you were talking to Cora, you know, about like how we're, we're t- thank you for saying that we're telling a better story. I will take that compliment. Um, <laughs> I see it as offering an alternative, right? Yeah. And at some yeah. point, it's at some point, just critiquing what's out there isn't enough. And I, I, I will always critique what's out there. But like, at some point, it's like, well, okay, well, then what's your idea to make it better? And how are you doing that? And how are you actually investing yourself and taking risk to make that happen? So for me, if I had, if I had taken on a project like unionized yoga and was content only with telling yoga works how to do things better. um, But then given the opportunity, I didn't invest in actually creating something different and grappling with the questions of what that looks like and the hard work of that. um, I wouldn't be holding myself accountable. Um, So I just wanted to share that because I I was thinking about it as you were talking in terms of uh, putting in an application. We've currently had two rounds. We're in our second round right now of applications. um, And the current one is, uh, I'm going to back that up a second. So um, in terms of putting in applications, we open applications for certain periods. And I would say, about once a quarter. Um, That's the amount that right now we've figured out is sustainable and responsible, both for our existing group of people and also for the people coming in. And so, um, you know, if anyone's listening and is like, well, what the hell kind of change are they going to make with 25 people? It's like, it's a slow, it's a slow build. We do need strength in numbers, but we also need to be really careful not to completely like oversaturate or, or water down um, what we're doing it. And, and by what we're doing, I mean like the fabric of, of the connective and the relationships in it, right? If all of a sudden we're in a group where people don't know each other and there isn't trust and there isn't community and there aren't shared values, then like that's where it falls apart. So um, we actually, you know, we do have other teachers on the platform, beyond yoga teachers. So we do have some Pilates folks and other fitness folks. And our, our latest round is actually primarily geared towards fitness um, so that we are an, truly an interdisciplinary platform um, out of an acknowledgement that what people need day to day and at different points of their lives can and does vary. Um, and so again, sort of not thinking of these different modalities as being in competition with each other, but actually truly complementing each other and, and helping, helping whole human beings. So I'll let Avita take the second part of that question. Uh Uh-oh. What's the second part? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, yeah. What? (laughs) Um, so I'll just maybe try to make it more concise. Um, if someone wants to create something like this, maybe they live outside the U S and they're just thinking they've listened to this and for the first time and they're super inspired, like any advice on getting started or like things you wish you knew while you were starting out. So I think the thing I wish we all knew when (laughs) starting out 
was what it meant to own a business, right? So, you know, it might look really attractive to work with a group of like anti-racist, you know, anti-capitalist teachers trying to like change the wellness industry. And it is great, but (laughs) (laughs) it's great. But the big but is you are not working for a studio. You're not a contractor. And the contractor culture, the self-employed contractor culture is so deeply ingrained into how we work. Right. So I think, I, I think, you know, in those early conversations, some serious, you know, conversations about what it means to own a business and create something and invest in this in order to divest from, you know, working at studios that did not treat you well or gyms that did not treat you well. Right. So, um, that's one thing I would advise anyone that wants to, um, do if they do want to open a hundred percent, you know, worker owned co-op. Um, every person that's on there is going to have to wear an owner hat, not just a teacher hat. Yeah, that's huge. And that's not for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. But yeah. It's good to, it's good to know. That's one of the, one of the main things that I've found I've ended up doing in my work now is helping people make the shift from thinking like a sole trader to thinking like a business owner. And it's, it's a, it's very different. It's super, super, super different. So yeah. And when you get into community, um, you need everyone rowing in the same direction. I think we talked about this a little earlier in the conversation too, but as it relates to this point, like if someone were to try to do something similar as the connective, um, that doesn't mean just a collective, right? Bringing a few people together. I think on this, that's very surface level. What we're doing is that we're a co-op and that if someone wanted to do something similar, what they would be asking themselves is how are we not going to replicate harm? How are we going to interrupt the harm and not perpetuate it? And, and the values that come, you know, concrete values that come out of that would be the foundation of whatever group of teachers wanted to start something. Um, I think that's so important. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I It's not just the working together part, you know, like for us, if, if there's so much, there's so much richness in experience in having a diverse group. So our group is, uh, you know, about half identify as BIPOC and half identify as white. And our stewards council is majority BIPOC and, um, our values are like the foundation of the de- every decision that we make for our business and in an attempt to answer those questions about what what is dominant culture, um, what do we not want to replicate from dominant culture? 
So that's really what I would encourage folks to work on um, and then get to things like price splits and structure like that's secondary. And that comes if you're doing the other work first. Right. So why, why, why are you opening the co-op? Why are you building this? You know, you have to have a clear idea of why. And I think we are gathering as change makers, as much as we are gathering as teachers, you know, and that's, that's what drives us to continuously look at not just building it a certain way, but continuously improving on it. And, you know, as we speak, we are, we are implementing changes to our structure to include BIPOC caucus and, you know, that, that work, that effort, it's something that came out of understanding that our structure was good, but we wanted it to be stronger. We wanted to guarantee BIPOC majority in terms of leadership. Um, so we are, we are changing and growing continuously. Um, I'm so excited by what you are all creating together. And I also want to be respectful of your time. So I'm just going to ask one question before we wrap up to each of you. Um, Avita, could you finish this sentence? If you really knew me, you would know? What my favorite food is. Oh, <laughs> do, do we get to know what it are, is? Yeah. Too? Are you going to tell us? <laughs> So mysterious. <laughs> so good. Um, so if you know me really well, well, you know my favorite food is currants roll. Just it is. It is it's, what? I didn't I didn't hear you. Currants roll. It's an Indo-Caribbean pastry. It's you know, if my mother was like, What do you want me to make you as a treat? It'd be currants roll. It's what I make for my birthday every year. Or if I'm with my mom, she makes it for me. Um, and yeah, it's just this flaky pastry with currants. And you cannot buy it because it doesn't taste the same as homemade. So it's, yeah, it's just hours and hours <laughs> and hours of love. <laughs> Rolled into something delicious. <laughs> exactly. is, is there butter involved? <laughs> so much butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the white flour the butter the sweet currants it's perfect sounds delicious <laughs> <laughs> um thank you for sharing that avita um markella could you answer the same question if you really knew me you would know if you really knew me you would know um few things make me happier than digging my hands in dirt and growing food Mm. <laughs> That's it. <I> feel, <laughs> full stop. Um, I feel like you've got some of that happening on your Instagram. Like I, I felt like I got a little window into, you know, your personal yeah. life. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely like a, um, a source of grounding and presence and, uh, you don't have to include this on the podcast, but like, I see so much <laughs> cool shit out there. We have a snake. <laughs> out in our garden oh and all cool. the worms and the bugs and birds and like there's just so much life out there <laughs> I'm totally keeping that on the podcast um <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's relevant it's I think it's <laughs> <laughs> um 
So before we hang up, could each of you tell us how people listening can connect with you? And you can make that individually and through the connective, or if um, it just feels more relevant to just talk about how they can find you on the connective, go for it. But like if people are curious and they want to learn more about you and what you teach and what you do, um, Markella, why don't you start? How can people find you? Sure. Um, people can find me through Instagram. Um, my handle's at Markella Los, and I'm not teaching right now, but I do end up having a whole lot of conversations with yoga teachers who do want to organize or um, studio owners who are trying to rethink their model and make it more equi- equitable. Um, so I am always happy to nerd out about those kind of conversations. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me individually. Cool. Um, Avita, where can people find your work? So people can find me on the connective. (laughs) Um, So that's where I I do most of my teaching, but I also teach a weekly class on Tejal yoga. And and that's it. That's only places you can find me for teaching, but you can also find me on Instagram where I ramble a lot about... Mm -hmm cultural and political critiques so that's no 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 no, no, no. (laughs) you have to follow avita's instagram (laughs) yeah i would highly recommend it (laughs) at uh, yoga with avita cool Awesome. Um, I will put all of those links in the show notes so people can just click through and um, find you both and i just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast but also for um, you know, doing that extra step. Yes, there's a critique that needs to happen, as we've mentioned, but then taking it to the next step and um, creating an alternative and, you know, being a, I'm just speaking on behalf of the yoga industry. I don't think I should do that, but I'm going to creating, being a role model for what we could do, because for some people, they can create something that doesn't exist, but a lot of people need to see something before they could create it themselves. So, you know, thank you for, for actually creating an alternative for people for, you know, putting something together that is a very different way of doing things um, because I think it will really inspire change in the industry. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks for that, Cora. And thanks for having us on. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Teaching Yoga Podcast. If you want to stay connected between shows, make sure you join my weekly video newsletter, The Practice, at CoraGeroux.com slash newsletter. If you don't keep it real, then you go somewhere but here, cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it. You know, I'm just a dude that you know, or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here, cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. Team is me and the team is